0: Good morning. It's a beautiful day. We're thankful that you could be here with us to worship. Um, My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor, and we're going to continue our series called The Devoted Church this morning. Let's um, go to prayer as we open up the Word. Father, uh, we're thankful for today, and we're thankful for the people that we're sitting next to, the people in this room, for the people that are serving across the way that are serving in this building we're thankful for this church God. we're thankful that you've placed us here in this community and we pray god that um, you would continue to work um, in this place and it is our prayer collectively that we would Do this thing called church like you want us to do. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to commit ourselves and to devote ourselves to the things that you want us to be devoted to. And so, God, if we need to be convicted this morning, convict us by your Spirit. If we need to be encouraged, encourage us this morning. But God, we want to study your word, and we want to be molded by it as the church, with a church with so many blessings and so many resources. God, our number one cry is that we would be the church you would want us to be. And God, we do. We pause here as we've just sung some beautiful songs about you, about forgiveness and about new life. And we worship you today. We thank you for all that you've done on our behalf. But now as we open up the word, God, we pray by your spirit, you'd teach us, you'd encourage us, you'd convict us. We love you. We thank you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we've mentioned it a few times already. We started a a new series a a few weeks ago called The Devoted Church, and it's not that complex. I I mean, I think as I was kind of thinking about this series, it's one that I've thought about for quite some time now, where essentially what I'm saying is, is that we want to be a church that God wants us to be, and that the church... This building, this place, these people, us together is so significant that God in his word, Paul tells us in Ephesians that God has eternally decided that the church would be used to reveal the wisdom of God. And it's, it is a, there is so much at stake for us to be the church that God wants us to be because it is through the church that God's message goes to E-Town and to Mount Joy and to Hershey and all of the surrounding community. But bigger than that, the church is the means by which God has eternally decided that his message and his gospel will go to the world. And so for me, just thinking through reading the book of Acts, do we look like the church that started in the book of Acts? And I think as I was starting to write my sermon for for the morning, um, I kind of just came to this realization that it's not our default position to be a church devoted to the right things. Like it's not just by definition that we are the church and just our default position is we are gonna be committed to the right things, devoted to the right things. And I've been reading this really long book about Martin Luther. You're probably tired of hearing about Martin Luther. I have finally finished the book. So this will hopefully be my last Martin Luther illustration. But it's, it's incredible to me. Reading about Martin Luther and the church that he is standing up against. That when Martin Luther stood up against the church, the church that started as Acts chapter two slowly became what it was a thousand years later when Martin Luther confronts it. It's amazing to me how quickly the church changed from Acts two to what it was when Martin Luther confronted it. I mean, it's incredible to me. And as I was thinking through just the history of the church, It doesn't take long studying the history of the church to realize that the church hasn't always been devoted to the right things. That for the first 300 years of the church, when being a Christian was illegal, when the emperors of Rome said, if you attest to anyone other than the emperor, you will be killed. And so you see this this first 300 years where the church that met in homes, it was the Acts 2 church, met in homes and and they sung together. They would eat meals with each other. They would share communion at the end of of the meals. It was this informal, home-like meeting that the church, even though it was illegal, flourished. And then 300 years into its existence, something really interesting happened. Things got easy for the church. When Constantine became emperor, what did he do? He became a Christian. And all of a sudden, from being illegal and kind of being underground and undercover, being a Christian was legal. And it was encouraged. in Constantine as he became a Christian, which there's so much history written on what this looked like and what this actually meant. But what happened was when he became a Christian and he declared Christianity to be legal, he declared himself to be the head of the church. And you study the, the impact of the church becoming really easy and being legal. And you study and you can just kind of see over the next six, seven hundred years, the influence of the emperor on worship, where worship started to become formalized. It started to become a little bit more dressed up. It became a little bit more ornate. And you can see this kind of slow drift once it was legalized and once the emperor became in, in charge of the church, this slow drift from Acts chapter 2, very regal, hierarchical, rigid, and you start to see corruption. You start to see th- bad decisions made. You start to see Poor interpretations of the text. And what happened, really, in my view, what really changed the makeup of the first church was when they translated the manuscripts. Okay, so the, the Greek and the Hebrew, what, what the, the text was written in, was first translated in Latin. But Latin started to become archaic. And when the church, the bishop of the church, Constantine, declared and decided, We're not going to translate from the Latin. We are going to control the messaging of this book, essentially saying my interpretation of this book will be the interpretation for all people. And then you start to see how once they controlled the message, they controlled the people that were coming to the churches with indulgences, priests and pilgrimages and sacraments and all of these religious structures that kind of crept into the church and how quickly, quickly they departed from Acts chapter 2. And I was reading about someone who predated Martin Luther, who, who wrote a book on the church, John Huss who basically is watching the corruption of the church. And that's a poor explanation of the corruption. I mean, it was rampant. It was rampant. When the Pope says, I'm going to war, I need people to come and fight with me. If you agree to come fight with me, I will forgive your sins for the rest of your life. Like that's what was happening. And, and so John Huss sees the corruption of the church and he, just, he writes a book on it. Here were just a couple of the lines. The church is the body of Christ. Christ alone is the head. Only God can forgive sins, and priests were unnecessary. Christians only need to obey God's word, not worship images or take spiritual pilgrimages. And so John Huss is is essentially saying here's how the church has gone wrong. Now, as the, the Catholic Church responded, the emperor responded to this. They basically did not like what John Huss was doing. And they said, "This is, this is it's not funny, it's just interesting to me. They, they invited him, kindly invited him to a church council. But they promised him protection and safety. So he said, bring your book that we really don't like, and we're going to have a council, and we're going to protect you, and we want you to share about your book. And so he um, very skeptically agreed to do this. He goes and he stands in front of this church council, in front of um, the emperor and the pope and the priests and all the the hierarchical leaders of the church, and and they look at him and they determine that there were 42 articles in this book on the church that made John Huss a heretic, the things that I just shared, that only God can forgive sins, that priests aren't necessary, But they said, well, but we promised you safety, even if we disagreed with you. And so they instead threw him in prison. Um, For three years, he sat in prison, and he was basically starved to death. And then after three years of this, where they said, we're going to stand by our word to not hurt you, finally, the emperor on July 6th said to him, "Um, no promise counts for a heretic. And so the church decides to kill him. And so they bring him in front of the of the leaders three years after he first was in front of them. This is how they describe what happened to John Huss. They instructed him to stand on a table, his charges were read, he was mocked and he was cursed. A tall paper crown was placed on his head, and on the crown was painted three devils fighting for the possession of his soul. With the words, on this paper ground, the chief of heretics, the bishop committed his soul to the devil. Hush replies to them, I commit it to the most merciful Lord Jesus Christ. He was dragged then to the stake where he was asked one last time to recant. He knelt and he prayed, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I've never thought nor preached except the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I will gladly die. And they wrapped him up in a chain, and they they burned him to death. And that's the church. That was the church that a thousand years earlier was Acts 2. That was meeting in, in homes. That was singing hymns and reading creeds that was breaking bread and was sharing in communion with one another, that was selling things on behalf of, the, uh, of others. The church had quickly left the way that God had made it. And so for us, I think it's, it's, it would be ignorant for us to just assume that by being a church, we are devoted to the right things. History tells us otherwise. There's many examples of this. And so The kind of the question that we've been asking is, what what kind of church do we want to be? What does God want us to be? And to do that, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And we've said, and I think I've said it like this, was we want to paint a picture of the book of Acts or the church in the book of Acts, and we want to hold it up next to us and say, is this us? But I want to just pause there for a second, just the, the interpretive the interpretive question behind what we're doing. Okay, this may be, you may get lost for just a minute. I don't, maybe you shouldn't. Um, we want to be really careful with how we look at the book of Acts and how we study the history in the book of Acts because the challenge when studying the book of Acts and studying the first church in the book of Acts is that we do look very differently. Okay, Acts was history. So I remember I was talking to Lucy Hickson up here a few weeks ago, and I asked her, I said, I was gonna ask you to paint a picture of the church because she's a really talented painter. And I said, like, if I had asked Lucy, I didn't, I wouldn't put the pressure on you, to take Acts 2 and to paint a picture of what the church looked like, what would she have painted? She would have painted... Church that was meeting in homes. She would have painted a church that, would that according to Acts chapter 2, met daily. She would have painted a group of people that met in the temple. She would have painted a church, like we shared last week, that was sharing meals with one another in houses, that at the end of the meal they would, they would share in communion with one another. She would have painted Acts 2.43 that said, many signs and wonders were being done in the church. She would have picked, painted the picture of this communal-like living, which we're going to talk about today, that people were selling their property, that they were sharing their things, that they were living with one another. And she would. this is the picture that we have of the first church in Acts. And, the, and for us, if, if we pause and we think, okay, does that look like this? Does that look like this? Like, we aren't meeting in homes. We aren't meeting daily in the temple. I'm not performing signs and wonders today. I apologize. Like, if if we just look plainly at the church in Acts 2 and we hold it up next to what we're doing right here this morning, if we're honest, we would say things look different, And so the interpretive question then is, how do we study the book of Acts, specifically this first church in Acts 2, to get a picture of what we need to be like today? Because what we're not trying to do is just say, we want to be just like this church. This first church in Acts, we're going to do everything that they did exactly like they did it, because that's clearly not happening. And so it's an interpretive question. How do we study God's word to learn from the history of this first church for us today? Maybe you're not asking that question. I'm asking that question for you, though. So how do we do it? Okay, Acts is history. Okay, We've got to keep the genre of the book of Acts in the front of our minds. Acts is history. And so if we're going to study the history of Acts, we've got to understand that Acts was written describing a particular place, a particular people at a particular time. And just by it being in the book of Acts doesn't necessarily mean it should be what we should look like. We've got to do the interpretive work to say, okay, what do we learn about this piece of history from this particular time for us to look like? Today and so when you're do when you're studying history like the book of Acts you've got to study the book of Acts comparatively. In other words, you take the descriptions of Acts and you compare that with what other Scripture says about the church. Very specific. Or a good example is you look at the epistles. And so instead of just saying, "Well, this is how the church is described. This is what we need to look like," but the. the 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 best way interpretively to do that is to take the description and then to say, what does other scriptures tell us as a local church about how we should be committed? So for example, the signs and wonders, Acts 2.43 makes it really clear that this first church in Acts was, they were speaking in tongues, communicating with all the different languages and all the people that had come for the Pentecost at the the temple, um, that the that the apostles were performing signs and miracles and they were healing people. Okay, so how do we study that text comparatively? Well, if you look at the second letter in Corinthians, Paul is pretty clear that in 12.12, 12, that the apostles were the ones that were making these miracles, doing these miracles and doing these signs. So again, as you, if you lay Acts 2 next to the, the bigger picture of the New Testament... You can learn a lot about, we can learn a lot about what we should be doing today. And essentially what I'm saying is that since 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us that it was the true apostles, which is what the text says, the true apostles, the people who saw Jesus, who experienced the resurrection, those first line observers, only those men were doing the signs and the wonders And since we are not apostles, then we also are not called to do those signs and wonders. And elsewhere in the epistles, you see commitment to God's word. Colossians tells us to be committed to God's word, to let it dwell in you richly, just like we preached two weeks ago. Elsewhere in the epistles, we're told to be committed to prayer, committed to to fellowship. And so we take the picture of Acts 2, we line it up kind of against the bigger backdrop of the New Testament, and we say, what can we learn about the church? Not only do we study it comparatively, we study it contextually. So when you look at Acts 2, you've got to realize this is the brand new beginning of the first church, and the church develops throughout the book of Acts. And so what we have to do as we study God's word, is to, to, be, to be thinkers, to read broadly. And so for us this morning, we want to talk about the generosity of the first church. And we want to do that contextually. We want to do it comparatively as we look at the, the grander picture of the New Testament. So look at Acts 2.42. We'll read um, the whole passage, and then we'll focus on generosity. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. What a picture. What a picture of this first church. And we want to focus really on just verses 44 and 45. The first church in Acts 2 was a church that was radically generous. So let's study the generosity just here in Acts 2 and in this context. I mean, clearly, there were so many needs for this first church. Needs. It was a needy group of people. Remember, we, we shared a couple weeks ago that it was Pentecost. This was the, one of the most widely attended celebrations from all over the world. People were coming to Jerusalem. Thousands of people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate and to make sacrifice to God for the law and for what he'd done through Moses. And that Peter stood up, remember, and he said, repent, you just killed Jesus who is both Lord and Savior. And as he's preaching the gospel, people were cut to the heart. That's what the text says, they were convicted because all of a sudden they looked down at their hands and they realized we crucified Christ and the Lord. And thousands of people repented. And, and I just pictured this these pools of people just jumping into these pools and being baptized by the apostles. Thousands of people being baptized. And if you can just picture this scene, they come up out of the water and they, they start attending these gatherings of, of people sharing meals with one another. And they look around with each other and say, What do we do now? Like, what are we supposed to do? But the people were so excited that had traveled. Thousands of miles to get to Jerusalem that they said, we're not ready to go home yet. Like, we're not ready to go home. This is getting really, really good. And they spoke foreign languages. And you could just picture, you could just understand that there were so many needs, but if this was how it happened. That if people had traveled to Jerusalem and they were sticking around, that they didn't have jobs, that they had, they had needs, but then you kind of follow kind of the impact of the gospel in the book of Acts, and you start to see people coming to know Christ. Look at Acts 3 very briefly. The first, the first story right after this first church is gathering, it's the lame man at the, at the beautiful gate, and it's a pretty powerful picture of what the gospel was, was doing, this man who's carried to the beautiful gate outside of the temple. Every single day he is carried to this gate, and Peter, he heals the man. I mean, just the thought of not being able to walk. Like, you can't walk. What would you do? The desperation that that would cause, and this man is healed. And the moment he puts his faith in Jesus Christ, he's part of this church church, The church was needy. Think about the needs of this man. All of a sudden, he can walk, but he hasn't been able to walk. He hasn't been able to earn a living, and now he's part of the church. I mean, the picture of this first church is very needy. Later in Acts 6, it talks about widows, how the first church started to organize their care for widows, Women who'd gone through loss and had no way to earn money for themselves and were left to nothing. And as you kind of see these stories kind of come together, these new converts internationally who had traveled to this, to this festival, to this celebration, to the, to the lame men and women who were being healed, to the widows who were already part of the church you can sense the need in this first church and look back at verse 44 of Acts 2. What was the Okay, so that's the situation. What was the church doing? They had all things in common verse 44 and verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. What were they doing? They were selling their possessions. They were, look at Acts 4, actually tells us a little bit more about what they were doing. Um, I don't think it's on the screen. Acts 4 tells us, just describes it in different words. It says, there was not a needy person among them, verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had a need. These new believers are saying, I am going to sell my things on eBay, and I will take the money that I make from all the things that I have, I will give it to the apostles so that they... They didn't sell it on eBay, but... They were selling their things. They were earning money. They were taking that money to provide for people who had needs. It's hard to imagine this. I mean, the examples of the land. Like, I have some extra land. Yeah, and and the man that was at the beautiful gate, like, he has nothing. And so I will sell my land so that I could pay for this man to have a place to live. I will sell my house so that this widow in Acts 6 has some way to live. This is the picture of the first church. Acts, back to Acts 4, sorry about that, 36 and 37 just describes how Barnabas actually does this. He sells his field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Not just a description of what the first church was doing, this is what the church was doing. I have some land, I will sell it, and I will give it to my brothers and sisters who have needs. But what else were they doing, this first church? Look at verse 40, back to 44. All who believed together had all things in common. Okay, this kind of sounds like they were living in a large community, like like if we moved out to the soccer field and said we're going to live together, we're going to have all things in common. Doesn't that sound fun? Like sharing everything. But that's what that's the description of this first church Acts 4 describes this again in verse 32. No one this is the 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 quote or the the phrase that stuck out to me in verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own i own nothing it is for everyone whoever has a need sounds like my father when i would refuse to share with my two brothers growing up and what my dad would say is that's not your nintendo son like i bought that nintendo like it's my nintendo if i want your brothers to play with it they can play with it because it's my game I yes, dad, okay, I can share. Nothing was their own. Everything was shared. And, and so, and I kind of spent a long time on my introduction. Okay, is that how we're supposed to be though? Right, that's the description of the church in Acts 2. Is the application that we need to go sell our houses and move to the soccer field. Is it really that we need to sell our extras and all of our things and you need to bring it to the church and say, take this money and give to those who have needs? Is that the application? Is that the way that we should interpret this passage? Well, thankfully, no, we're not going to be moving to the soccer field, but it's worthwhile for us to think about this picture of the church in Acts 2 in comparison with The New Testament, because you study the New Testament, there's nothing wrong with owning property. In fact, it seems to be a very normal thing. Nor are you prohibited anywhere in the New Testament about owning a house or having things. Nor are we ever told in the New Testament to sell all of our possessions always and give to those who have needs. Remember, this is just a description of what this first church was doing. But it's up to us to say, what does it mean for us? And this isn't really complicated. It's not complicated. It's not a matter of how we are radically generous, which their how was I will sell my land, I will sell my house. I will sell my things, I will share my things for anyone and everyone that has needs. It's not a matter of how. It's a matter of whether or not we are being generous. The concept of generosity is pretty loud in the New Testament. And so we are to be really simply radically generous like the the first church was radically generous. Though how we do it doesn't matter as much that we are to care for the people in this room, for the people in our community with radical, crazy, loving generosity. Because this is the picture of this first church and elsewhere in the New Testament, it is clear that this is how we are to view our money and how how we are to view our possessions. And so I wanna just close with three questions. Oh boy, I'm going to have to hurry here. Three quick questions about generosity and about how we can be generous today. First, what might someone learn about God by looking at how you handle your money and possessions? What might someone learn about God by looking at how you handle your money and possessions? I don't know if there is an indicator that is, speaks the most about our understanding of a grace-giving, generous God than how we handle our money and possessions. If you aren't gracious with your money and your possessions, can you understand a gracious God who gives us everything? And this isn't just my thought. The New Testament has so much to say about money and possessions. It's almost odd. It it feels like constantly Jesus is talking about money and about possessions and about giving to others and caring for others. Why does he do this? Because he knows that money and possessions can be a stronghold that keep us from God. Zacchaeus is a really interesting example where at the very end of the story in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is he's overflowing with just gratitude for what Jesus has done for this tax collector. What does he say? What does he say to Jesus? I'm going to do to make things right. I will give half my money to the poor. I will give fourfold to those who cheated. Zacchaeus gives this declaration of, here's, look at what you've done for me. The forgiveness that I have for all that I've done, I'm responding that by giving my resources to other people. And what does Jesus kind of summarize what he just saw with Zacchaeus? He says, today, salvation has come to this house. Based on what you're doing with your money and possessions and how you're giving back, salvation is here. Salvation has happened because it's an indicator that God has done something internally in Zacchaeus. Or you go to the rich young ruler who refuses to sell his things. And what does Jesus say? You're not ready. You're not ready to come to the kingdom. Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. The, the word that stuck out to me. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. How you handle money tells me how you handle God. Right? How you understand the resources you've been given by a gracious God tells me how you handle the God who gives you all those things. And so the the second question is how are you stewarding what God has given you? I love this word steward, and we use it a lot up here talking about the resources that we have as a church. But the the word that I think is the best description of how we are to view our money and how we are to view our possessions is this word steward. That you have, here's the definition, a steward is someone who's been entrusted with another's wealth or prosperity and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. A steward is entrusted with the sufficient resources and the authority to carry out his designated responsibilities. In other words, what I've just been saying, God's given you everything, and everything is God's. The whole world is God's. Everything in the world is God's, Psalm 24.1. And God has given you all the things that you have. Your role is not to own your stuff, to hoard your stuff, Your role is because it is God's and he gave it to you as a gift is to steward it, to ask yourself, how can I use what God has given me to do what God wants to do in this world? That's the question. If it's all God's, then how can I use my resources to do what God wants to do? How can I use my resources to show others that God loves them? And it should be how we pray every single day. God, how can I use the gifts, the resources, the time, my house? How can I use my job? How can I use my passions? How can I use my dinner table? How can I use my bank account? How can I use my skills? How can I use my relationships? All of these blessings you have Poured onto me, how can I use them to communicate to somebody else that you passionately love them and have forgiven them? Every day we should be praying that. How can I steward what you have given me that is yours to point someone to you? And I close with this question. Have you ever experienced the joy of being radically generous? And this, I'll be honest, for as I have been working on this sermon, I have been convicted. Just thinking about generosity, just thinking about this first church, which I think it's a pretty fair summary. They were radically generous to care for people. And we're called to be radically generous in caring for people. And I've just been... That's been what I've been thinking about personally. How am I radically generous? There is a joy that is indescribable when you are radically generous to care for somebody else. And and the question for you, for your spouse, if you're single, for whoever you are, is have I experienced the joy of being radically generous? My prayer for this church is this. Is that we would be like the church in Corinth? That we would give sacrificially. We would be eager to give, and then we would excel in giving. I'll close by reading this passage. Is it up there? Second Corinthians eight one through four. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, this is the situation here in verse two. For In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, how did this other church respond? Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. Okay, that's normal, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Another church is suffering Pastor Matt, I beg you, let me give you money and give you more money beyond my means. Let me give you what I have because a church is in need. Then you continue there at the, the verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love, for you see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is the act of grace? giving good gifts as a church it is my prayer that we would continue to excel in giving and we are very generous here we are i'm not saying that we are not generous we this is one of the most generous churches i have ever been a part of in your in your tithing and in your giving on sundays in your care for other people at christmas i get phone call after phone call how can i give someone who has needs Christmas. Like We get those requests very often. The amount of meals that are made for other people, it's astounding to me. This church is generous, and I'm not trying to say that we're not, but I'm saying, may we continue to be so focused on what we are to excel in, and that is generosity. Because look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I mean, that's generosity. And that's, it, it, that's where we need to be. And if we're going to be a devoted church, we're going to be devoted to radically caring, being radically generous with all the gifts that we have, not just money, But with all that we have, saying, God, how can I use this to point to someone, to the Jesus of verse 9 that we just read, who gave up everything to give us everything? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would change our view on how we understand our things. Change my view, God on how I view my resources. God, we confess, I confess, this viewpoint of ownership, this viewpoint of hoarding, of things that I have earned. God, and I pray that you would help us to embrace the stewardship mindset. God, that you have given us everything. And that we are responsible as the local church to radically care for the people in this room, to radically care for our neighbors and for our community. And so, God, I pray that this week, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we stay home, as we interact with our neighbors, I pray that as needs come to our mind and to to our attention, God, that you would, by your spirit, convict us to provide for the needs the best that we can. That we would be like that church in Corinth that would excel in giving even beyond our means. And at the end of the day, we'd come and say, God, we trust you. We trust you to provide. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to do that work in this place. We thank you, God, for how you're already Um, have put generosity in the hearts of so many people here for the way that they care for one another through making meals and at Christmas and through giving on a regular basis on Sunday mornings to the mission of this church. But God, we pray that you would continue to work through our generosity, that we would have the opportunity to introduce someone else to the generosity of your son, Jesus Christ. We need your help with this. So we pray it in the name of your of your son Jesus Christ. Amen.